verses 31 through 35. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, as we look to your word this morning, it's sometimes difficult to see the hope contained here. All we see is Peter. Lord, that's all I see when I see this. But Lord, I know that your spirit has has called us to see more here, to see the hope, to see the fulfillment, to see the promise of Christ. So Lord, give us eyes to see, give us understanding, and Lord, increase our faith. It's this in Christ's name, in my name. Amen. Well, I've probably, I know that I've mentioned this before in the last few years since we've been studying Matthew's gospel, but Christmas is coming up, and so I'm going to mention again have you noticed, as, as you look to the Gospels, not just Matthew's Gospel, but how, how little ink is, is used on Christmas? How, how, much, how, how few words there are about Jesus' birth. Matthew, if you've noticed, he spends as much time, as many words, perhaps more, talking about Jesus' genealogy. Remember that, the very beginning, long, long ago? Got a little ring here. Jesus' genealogy, there's huge, all of chapter 1, and you've got all of that, and you just have this, these couple paragraphs about Jesus' birth. So, so if you were to put that in perspective with our fractions, Luke fractions, so about 128th of the entire book of Matthew is about Christmas. It's not very much. Some of you sinners spend one-sixth of the year Listening to Christmas music. <laughs> amen. <laughs> somebody. Amen, somebody. Matthew, that, that's just the sides. Matthew tells us nothing about Jesus' childhood except where, a little bit of where Jesus lived. He, he was born in Bethlehem. He moved to Egypt and he moved to Nazareth. Or Nazareth. In fact, Matthew, uh, to Matthew, where Jesus lived is more important than what he liked to eat or what his personality was like or or what kind of games he liked to play, or how many siblings he had, or, or where, what his parents were like. We didn't see any of that. But there's a reason that Matthew has written his gospel the way that he has. There's a reason why he spends so little time on Christmas. And it's the same reason why these last ten days of Jesus' ministry get nine entire chapters while the other three years only get 16 chapters. 
I'm just one-third of, for 10 days and then two-thirds for the other 30-some-odd years. The, the primary driver behind Matthew is not biography, right? This would be a poorly written biography if this were just a biography. That The pi- primary driver behind Matthew's gospel is fulfillment. I know we keep saying that. Dustin, you said that last week and the week before. But, but it's because it's so vital to understanding why Matthew chooses to include some things and not others in his gospel. This book is a, is a proclamation of the gospel that Messiah has come. And in order to show that, Matthew has to show us how Jesus fulfills the Messiah promises. And, and perhaps the most controversial aspect of Matthew's argument is the fact that Jesus died. So if you were a first century Jew trying to make a case, or even a modern day Jew, trying to make the case against Jesus as Messiah, you would say he couldn't have been Messiah because he was crucified. And Matthew would open up his little book and he would point to these nine chapters, beginning in chapter 20, all the way through to the end, and say, ah, but see, that's exactly why he is Messiah. All that happened to Jesus in this this last week of his life shows he's fulfilling the law and the prophets. And and as we've seen, you know, Matthew's been rushing through the the previous bit of Jesus' life, but then he slows time down this last week, and then he slows it down even more in these last 12 hours, and zooms in on these last 12 hours before Jesus' death because so much of what's happening is fulfillment of Scripture. Everything after another, fulfillment of Scripture, fulfillment of Scripture. Think of how Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 reminds that church of the gospel and what two very important things he includes when he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It's the number one driving force behind the entire Gospel of Matthew, along with the rest of the Gospels, Mark and and Luke and John. And, And even as you read the book of Acts, you'll see all of the apostles preaching that Christ fulfills the scriptures. Jesus fulfills the scriptures and therefore he is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And certainly that's not all of what Matthew's been teaching us, is it? I mean, as we've been studying Matthew, there are massively, massively important lessons. We're seeing truths about who God is. We're learning about God's love. We're gaining a better understanding of God's mercy. We've learned about providence in the end times, and the nature of the kingdom. Jesus has taught us about the church. He's taught us more about marriage, about what it means to repent, and what it means to follow Christ, what it means to be a faithful Christian. We've learned about assurance. We've learned about doubt and enduring to the end, persevering. But all of that, all of those smaller lessons, those are all chapters in the book about fulfillment. That's the title. Jesus fulfills promises. 
So everything takes place within the framework of fulfillment. And I say all that because we need to remember that as we look at our text this morning. Mostly this is me coaching myself, okay? So, so in, in this text in particular, there's a temptation for me to rush in and to make all these conclusions about what's going on with Peter and how I'm like Peter and you're like Peter and so on. And really, we, we are a lot like Peter. That's why we see that so quickly. But we've got to slow down before we go there. Because even though that's the main action sequence here that we see in, in this section, that's not the main point of the text. Remember Matthew's goal. Remember, remember his goal. It's not always about us. It's about Jesus. So, so we need to read this text in the framework of the rest of Matthew's gospel, and then, then we'll see about Peter, okay? And see if maybe, if anything, that says anything about us. If, if, we, if we will slow down a little bit as we, as we approach this text, I think we're going to learn more than we would otherwise. So for context, as we slow down, we're, we're, gonna, we're still on the night of Passover. We've been there for a couple weeks now. Uh, the, the Passover meal has been eaten. They've, they've gone out from the meal. They've left the room singing hymns, as we saw at the end of last week, and they're on their way up to the Mount of Olives. And somewhere along the way, either on their way out of the city or once they arrive in, in the garden up there on the mountain, um, as they get closer, Jesus tells his disciples what he tells them here, here in verse 31. This is what we see here. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. Now I want you to pause there. Because if that's all Jesus said, then we would read this entire passage differently. And we would make our, our beeline to Peter's response. But that's not all Jesus said. That's a, that this is right here is why, why I want us to slow down. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written. See that? For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So why will they all fall away that night? Because it is written that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. Those four words make all the difference. For it is written. Now the discussion now, because we see that, now the discussion is not just an action sequence about what is about to happen to the disciples, but more what has been written about what will happen to the disciples. Do you see that? You see the difference? This is a fulfillment passage, just like the rest of Matthew. This is a fulfillment passage. What was written about the Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, there's something I want to point out in this verse that is a little bit hidden in the, in the English, and I, and I hesitate to do this, uh, but sometimes it's important, and I, need, and I want to show it to you. The verb there that you, that you see there, it says, you will all fall away. In the original language, in the Greek, this is actually a passive verb. You know what that means. It, it means it's, it's something that happens to the disciples, like the way that a golf ball on a tee is hit by the club. The ball is passive. It is acted upon by the club. 
In our text, in the way that Jesus phrases this, and he's intentional in this, the disciples are not the primary cause of their falling away. Not in this initial warning. All right, so I want you to see that it's passive. Secondly, the verb that that the Bibles, that our Bibles translate as fall away there in the passage, it comes from the verb scandalizo. So think scandalize, scandal. And it has to do with causing someone to trip up. We've seen this verb quite a few times in Matthew's gospel. It's been a while, though. Earlier in Matthew, we observed how Jesus is the stone that makes men stumble, the rock that makes them fall. That's a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 8. Let me show you Isaiah 8, 14. And he, he is the Lord, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What Jesus is doing here in our passage is saying, that's me. Jesus is identifying himself as the scandalon, the, the stone of offense, the rock of stumbling. He knows that's him, and he knows that all of Israel, just like Isaiah said, will be caused to stumble on account of him, because of him. The disciples are a part of that group, aren't they? They're a part of the group of all of Israel. They will be caused to stumble because of him. There's one translation um, that, as I was studying this week, that really brings out both of these ideas. And it, the translation translate our, our, translates our verse this way. He says, all of you will be caused to stumble because of me tonight. So you get that stumbling block idea but you also get caused to stumble right there. So you see that in this translation. Don't see it as much in in the ESV. Uh, You'll see why that's important in a moment. Isaiah 8 isn't the main prophecy being fulfilled here. It's part of it. That stumbling stone concept has already been introduced in in Matthew, and it comes up again and again in the New Testament. You're going to see that in Romans. You're going to see that uh, in, in, in Peter's writings as well. You see it in 1 Corinthians. What Jesus wants us to see being fulfilled here is not just that he is the scandalon, not only the stone that makes Israel stumble. He's showing us here something very explicit from Zechariah 13. That passage that Dustin read for us earlier. In Zechariah, you remember a few weeks ago, we see Messiah written of as a shepherd. That's one of the themes in in Zechariah. Messiah is a coming shepherd. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, Messiah is the shepherd that Israel and Judah reject. He's the one that is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. You saw that in in Judas' story. Well, here again, in in Zechariah chapter 13, Messiah is a shepherd. And in verse 7 of that passage, the Lord is speaking, the Lord himself is speaking, and look what he says. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. And then look what he commands his sword to do. Strike the shepherd. And the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. So you see what's happening here. The Lord, God, is commanding his sword And obviously that's a metaphor, but the Lord God is commanding his own sword to strike the shepherd. Now, who's the shepherd? Jesus, yeah. The ESV says this shepherd is the man who stands next to God. 
Some of your translations say the one who is close to God or the one who is an associate of the Lord. Or I love the KJV says the Lord's fellow. Well, who is that? The man who stands next to God is the same person that we read about back in Psalm 2. He's the Lord's anointed. He's the one who in Psalm 110 is the, the Lord saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is Messiah. And the Lord God says here in Zechariah, he's going to strike down the shepherd. Now, if, if, if you get nothing else from this morning's text in Matthew, you've got to see this. When Jesus quotes Zechariah, he's teaching us that all that is about to happen to him is God's will. The Lord has ordained that Messiah would be killed. Right? Fulfillment of Zechariah 13. We don't just have Isaiah 53 to go to. We have Zechariah 13 as well. When Jesus quotes Zechariah, he's teaching us all that is about to happen to him is God's will. The Lord has commanded his prophets to write this down hundreds of years before it was to happen. And Jesus is saying, that's being fulfilled today. Messiah's death is so much a part of God's plan that Zechariah says the Lord is the one commanding it. And then Jesus takes that and he makes it even more explicit. Look at the way that Jesus quotes Zechariah. He says, I, the Lord speaking, I will strike the shepherd. You see that in our text? Back, back in Matthew 26, I will strike the shepherd. That's the Lord speaking. The Lord is the one doing the striking. The Lord is the one that is, that is bringing this about. You also need to hear what Jesus is saying by quoting this passage. It's not just, it's not just that Messiah is struck down. He's saying, I'm the shepherd. You see that? And for the sake of his sheep, his flock, the shepherd willingly submits himself to the death that God has ordained. I think, like I said, if we skip ahead to Peter, we miss that. This is, this is the primary big flashing lights pointing to this passage. We've got to see this first. Jesus is fulfilling Zechariah 13. Jesus is Messiah. He's the shepherd who, who will die for his sheep. Secondary to that, we need to see that as a result of the shepherd being struck down by God's sword, the shepherd's sheep, his flock, are scattered. Again, that's a passive verb, isn't it? They are scattered. It's something that happens to them because their shepherd has been struck. When Jesus tells his disciples that you will be caused to stumble on my account, he's saying, I'm the shepherd from Zechariah 13. You are the sheep from Zechariah 13. And because God's word is being fulfilled tonight, because of what happens to me, you'll be scattered. I say all that because I want, I want us to see what Jesus says is about to happen that night is not this. It's not, you will all willfully betray me tonight. That's not what Zechariah says. That's not what Jesus is saying. He said that earlier. Right? Earlier in the Passover dinner, he said, one of you 
will betray me tonight. All that Jesus is saying here is he's the shepherd, the disciples are the sheep, the shepherd is going to die, the disciples won't die. Right? This is kind of good news for them. You're not going to die. You're going to be scattered. And if you continue to follow the Zechariah prophecy, you see what will later on happen to the disciples. They'll be refined. They will be the Lord's. The Lord has plans for these disciples, and they are good plans for the disciples, and they are God-glorifying plans. But let's go to the next verse, because that's kind of getting ahead. Look at verse 32. Jesus tells them, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So so right there, in the very same breath that Jesus says, I am the shepherd who will be killed, and you are the sheep who will be scattered, he says, I will be raised up, and I will go before you to Galilee. There is hope there in that verse, isn't there? Do you hear it? I will be struck down, but I will be raised up. He's He's talking about the hope of the resurrection. And this isn't new. Three times already, since chapter 16, when Jesus first began to hint that he was going to the cross, or actually say explicitly he's going to the cross, every time he promised he's going to be raised up after he's killed. And this time, built into that resurrection hope, Jesus gives a promise to his disciples that after that happens, he will still be their shepherd. Jesus, the Messiah, who is the good shepherd, will die for his sheep, and he will be raised up, and he will go before, he will lead the way to Galilee. Saying, I'm the good shepherd who leads my sheep. You're my sheep. There's hope here because he's saying that even after the sheep are scattered, even after he's died, been raised up, They'll still be his sheep. Though they would be scattered, though they would be caused to stumble, they're still his sheep. They'll still belong to him. And as their shepherd, he will continue to lead them. Brothers and sisters, there are some of you that need to hear this morning, you are still his sheep. You still belong to Christ. Some of you have fallen hard. Some of you have sinned in ways that you, that you feel like there's, there's no recovering from. And you're discouraged. But you're still his sheep. Listen, Jesus the good shepherd died for that very reason. The Lord laid your sin upon the good shepherd, and the Lord raised him up to lead you. So receive his forgiveness. Hear the hope in his words and follow him. There's an old hymn that we don't sing because it doesn't have a very good melody. So if you rewrite it, I would love to sing it. Um, But the the song is shepherd like a shepherd, or Jesus like a shepherd lead us. Do you know that one? And there's a verse there that says, thou hast promised to receive us, which is what he's doing here. He's promising, I will receive you. 
After the cross, after you were scattered, I will receive you. Thou hast promised to receive us, poor and sinful though we be. Thou hast mercy to relieve us, grace to cleanse, and power to free. The truth of that hymn is in this passage. What Jesus is communicating here in verse 32 is not condemnation. He's not saying, oh, you guys are so hopeless and faithless and terrible and you will betray me like you always do. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, guys, listen, this is what the scriptures say. He's preparing them for what's going to happen that night. This is what the scriptures say. The shepherd will be struck down and even you, the flock of the shepherd, will be offended by the shepherd's capture and you will be scattered and it must be fulfilled in this way. But he doesn't stop there. He says there is good news. There's good news, brothers. My death and your scattering is not the end of the night. I will be raised. And when I am raised, I will still be your shepherd and you will still be my sheep. It kind of reminds me of, of, of when, when uh, I would take the kids. So kids, you're all grown up now, but um, sort of. But when you were little, uh, we would go to the doctor to get shots. And I know we're not supposed to talk about taking kids to get shots these days, but, but we go, maybe we'll talk about haircuts, okay? So you go to, uh, to get your haircut or go to the dentist or really anywhere that kids don't want to go. And, and yet, they're kids, and so they don't have a choice, right? So, so it's to a child totally losing it in the face of one of those appointments, they believe it is the last day of their life. This is the hill that they will die on. But as their dad, I always knew that on the other side of whatever that appointment was, no matter what happened, no matter how big or how small of a fit that they were throwing, they would still be my kids. And I would still be their dad. That's what Jesus is saying here. Listen, God is foreordained. This is what he's telling them. I'm going to rephrase it again. God has foreordained that I will be struck down and you will be scattered. It will happen. But when it's all over, we will be reunited. There will be grace for you on that day. There will be forgiveness for you on that day. Even now, my forgiveness goes ahead of you. And most importantly, my love for you will still be strong on that day. This is all a good thing. This is all for God's glory. This is all for your good. We together must go through with this. It has been written down. Long before. This has always been a part of God's plan of redemption. But you can trust God. This will work out for your good. Let me just give you another glimpse of that. I know I hinted at Zechariah 13 a moment ago. But I want to see us, I want us to look at that again, because I think that the way that Jesus is teaching his disciples this, when he's echoing Zechariah 13, the rest of Zechariah 13 is going to be fulfilled. It is God's word. God's word will be fulfilled. So this prophecy will be fulfilled, some of it that night, some of it later on in the disciples' lives. But I want you to see this promise from Zechariah. All of these three verses that we looked at, they're, they're all part of a poem that is sort of set apart in Zechariah about Messiah and about his people. Look what verse 8 says. 
So he, the Lord has just said that he will, uh, his little ones are going to come under his hand. There's, there's sort of a, a reckoning that's going to happen. And then he says, in the whole land, all of Israel, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. That's judgment language. Right? One-third shall be left alive. He's essentially saying that only a small portion will actually follow this shepherd into the age of Messiah. Only, only one-third will actually be true Israel, true Christ followers. And then look what happens to this special third. Verse 9, And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people. They will say the Lord is my God. That's a covenant promise. That's covenant language. For, for those of you who are in Christ, that's you. You see what the Lord is doing to you? He's refining you. On the other side of whatever you are enduring right now, the point of it all is to make you more secure in Him. To, to, to remind you, you belong to Him. He's your God. After this trial that you are enduring right now, you'll get to the other side of it. And the Lord will welcome you, say, you're my sheep, and you'll say, you're my shepherd. Friends, there is so much hope bound up into verse 32 that we've been looking at. I almost don't even want to get to the rest of this passage. The rest is kind of discouraging. <laughs> and yet, it is written, and so we're going to continue. Verse 33. We very quickly find out when we get to verse 33 that Peter hasn't really been listening, right? Those hopeful bits that we were just thrilled about in verse 32, Peter is, as Paul Simon says, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. That's Peter. He's the boxer here. We, we very quickly find out when we get to verse 33, Peter has not heard any of this. He doesn't want to hear about God's grace he doesn't want to hear about God's plan being fulfilled even in him. He doesn't want to hear about the resurrection promise that's coming. All that Peter hears is something like this. Peter, you're a sheep. You'll be scattered. You'll be caused to, to, to stumble. It is written. That's all. That's all Peter hears. And look at his response. Oh, they're all going to fall away. Though they all fall away, they are all caused to stumble because of you. I will never fall away. I will never be caused to be scattered. I will never be caused to stumble or anything like that. I'll never fall away. I'm not like the other sheep. Do you hear that in what he's saying? Though it will happen to them, it will happen to me. I'm not like them. And that whole it is written stuff, that scripture doesn't apply to me because I'm different. There is a self-righteous, self-determined strain in his voice. Do you hear it? Not to mention argumentative. Not, not only is Peter thinking he's something special when he isn't, not only is he denying that Scripture will be fulfilled in him, even though they will be fulfilled in Jesus, he's okay with that. He's also just flat out, 
flat out telling Jesus, you're wrong to his face. So a quick application here. Brother and sister Christian, don't be like that. Do, do not even begin to think. This, this, when we see it in Peter, it helps us to see it more clearly in us. Don't begin to think when you see it, someone else caught up in sin or even someone warned about possible sin. Don't think I would never do that, right? Were it not for the grace of God, you would do that. Had the Holy Spirit himself not captured you, drawn you into union with Christ when he did, you would be capable of even the most egregious sin. Just give yourself enough time. And that should lead us to humility, shouldn't it? And compassion for those who are caught up in sin. That should lead us to, to want to walk with them and help lead them out of it. Not to stand by and watch and throw stones at them and gossip about them. Nor should we say, like Peter did, scriptures do not apply to me. Jesus, walking there with all 12 of his disciples, said the scriptures will be fulfilled tonight. Peter says, okay, maybe you guys, but not me. Don't do that. Now, certainly not all of Scripture applies to you. That's another error. But some does. And when it does, we should be quick to receive it, quick to submit to it because it's God's Word. Non-Christian friends who are, who are struggling with this. You're struggling with the concept of sin and whether or not your heart is in rebellion against God? Scripture says it is. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That all men there, that's inclusive. It covers all men and women. The Bible is more inclusive than you would think. It includes you. You are not unique. The scriptures are the word of God, and what God has said is true. You are a sinner. You are headed for death. And you do desperately need a Savior who brings forgiveness and life to you. So repent and receive Christ as Lord today. The scriptures apply to you. Well, in response to Peter's wrongheadedness, we could just come up with all sorts of examples of how to follow Peter's bad example. But in response, Jesus stops him. He gives him a, a, a specific prophecy concerning Peter. So the other prophecy was more general, right? Zechariah is going to be fulfilled tonight. And now, Jesus gives a specific new prophecy concerning Peter. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, specific to Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now remember when, when we were looking at verse, verse 32, and I said that verse 32 was passive, or was it verse 31? It was passive. What Jesus said was going to happen to the disciples, they would be caused to fall away. They would be caused to stumble. They would be scattered. That was passive. 
that was less intense. But what Jesus tells Peter is active. It's an active verb. When Jesus says, you will deny me three times, he's talking about Peter's heart. Your heart will actively, intentionally, willfully deny me. Jesus is essentially saying, you're right, Peter, you won't be scattered like the rest of the disciples, and you will not be caused to stumble like the rest of them. You, your sin will be worse. You will, from the core of who you are, deny me three times. And not just three times over the course of the rest of your life. You will deny me three times in the next few hours. And right here is the moment when Peter should just look at Jesus with humility and remorse and submission to his, to his Savior and ask forgiveness, right? Say, ask for forgiveness for his pride and, and for his de- defiance and say something like, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. Lord, I have, I have sinfully, sinfully thought of myself as higher than I ought to have. Forgive me. Please do not let me deny you. Something, anything, almost anything would be better than what Peter says here. Peter doubles down, doesn't he? Peter's going to double down on his own self-confidence, and he goes further into his Scripture-denying opposition to Christ. Look at verse 35. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Again, he's saying, Jesus, you are wrong. And what is so interesting to me is that earlier in the night, when Jesus had spoken of that betrayal, that's a harsh thing. Betrayal is is devastating. When Jesus has spoken of, of, of the betrayal, all of the disciples thought that, that they might be the one. Do you remember that? The one who would willfully, intentionally betray the Lord. They believed at that time Jesus' words even more than they trusted in themselves. And, and, and that humble submission to Christ, that elevation of Christ's word above their own, of Christ's truthfulness, it showed that they trusted in him. That was an example of how we are to follow Christ. But something happened between the beginning of dinner and and now. Maybe it was the wine. I don't know. Something changed in Peter's heart between that meal and what we see happening here. When Jesus says, the scriptures say you will be caused to stumble, Peter says, no, not me. He denies that the scriptures are about him. And when Jesus confronts Peter directly and says, truly, Peter, you will deny me, that is Jesus prophesying, Jesus the great prophet, the Messiah, the Lord prophesying over Peter, and Peter says, no, you're wrong, never. And ironically, Peter is already doing the very thing he says he will not do. You see that? He's already denying Christ. By denying the truthfulness of Jesus' prophecy, 
Peter is denying Jesus' power. He's denying Jesus' authority over him. He's denying Jesus' lordship. That's often true of our sin. Big sins don't come from nowhere. They're already present in our hearts in seed form. Jesus has taught us that, the whole book of Matthew. Murder is just anger all grown up, isn't it? Adultery is a mature lustweed bearing its fruit. Lying begins with exaggeration and flattery and then becomes habit. The person who says they would never deny Christ in the big situations but can't follow him in the little situations will deny him when it counts. And it always counts. So if you believe, for instance, that you would be willing to follow Christ, the gallows, but you're not willing to obey him in, in something little, like being truthful or generous or seeking him in prayer, friend, you're already denying his lordship. You're already proving that you will not be faithful in those trials. Peter is already denying Christ by refusing to submit to his authoritative prophetic word. He's already switched from trusting Christ to trusting in himself. He's already making the argument in his mind that the scriptures aren't true. He's rationalizing, isn't he? Matthew is setting the stage here for what will happen later on in the night. But we're not yet to the end of the chapter. We'll save that for later. But there's one more thing that I do want to show you here in our text. Remember this about Peter. You might remember as we've walked our way through Matthew, Peter is sort of a spokesman for the disciples. He's their leader. It was Peter who wanted to go out on the water to Jesus. Walk on the water in chapter 14. Do you remember that? It was Peter who confessed Jesus was the Messiah in chapter 16. And Jesus told him he would in many ways be the leader, the founder of the church. Peter was the one of, uh, of the few who had the privilege of seeing Jesus transfigured in, in chapter 17. And later on in chapter 17, when the tax collectors came, the temple tax collectors came to the disciples to, to ask them to pay the temple tax, they went to Peter. Even outsiders could see that Peter was a leader among these guys. Peter spoke for the disciples in chapter 19 when he told, when they, they had just learned about the rich young ruler who was supposed to leave everything. And Peter says, representing the disciples, I left everything. We all left everything. What do we get out of this? What's our reward? Peter is a leader. And when the leader denies that the scriptures will be fulfilled, and when the leader has confidence in himself rather than in Christ, and when the leader says that Jesus is wrong, what do his followers do? And all the disciples said the same. Parents, teachers, pastors, older brothers and sisters, those of you who have any influence over anybody, and really, every, someone's looking up to you, everyone. 
And, and when they're following your example of how to follow Christ, and you deny the Scriptures, or you become self-righteous or self-confident, or you argue with what the Lord has said, what do you think your followers will do? Parents, what do you think your children will do? That, that, that rules for you, it's not for me. And all of the disciples said the same. Your little disciples will do the same. Don't be like Peter. One of the difficulties with this passage is that that's where it ends. And all the disciples said the same. That's terrible. But I think if we were to step back and compare, don't be like Peter, what, is the, what are we to be like? Trust in Christ. And here's why. Even though Christ knew all of these things, even, even, even though Christ knew that the very best, the strongest, most zealous of his disciples was already in the process of denying him. He went to the cross for him. Christ died for Peter. Christ died for the one who was prone to argue with him. Christ died for the one who, who struggles with the Scripture's authority over him. Christ died for the one whose sin would often lead others astray. Friends, the, the, the moral of the story, if we were to just leave it as a moral of the story, the moral of the story is don't be like Peter. But the wonder of the story, the glory of the story, is that Jesus is the Christ, that the Scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus, and as the Christ, Jesus died even for Peter. He died even for you. And a whole lot of us are more like Peter than we would ever care to admit. He died even for you to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, all reproach, before him. Amen? Let's praise him for the wonder of the story.